Hello and welcome to the Northwood Podcast. My name is Heath Jones and I am your host and you, you might be watching this uh, instead of listening to it. So maybe this is not a podcast to you. And if you are watching this on YouTube, please uh, subscribe to our channel so that you can be notified when new videos come up. Or if you're watching this on Facebook, like our page. Uh, or if you are listening to this by way of podcast format, please uh, subscribe or follow us depending on whichever app that you are using. I should let you know that this podcast is made available by way of the All Indiana Podcast Network. That's a network that's made available by our local television station, Wish TV, or Channel 8, as we know it, know it around here in Indianapolis. And on their website, you can find more podcasts that are produced by the All Indiana Podcast Network, which, as the name suggests, are all made here in Indiana. You can find that at www.wishtv.com backslash podcast or type in allindianapodcastnetwork.com. All of this is a production of my church, Northwood Christian Church here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out our website at www.indyncc.org. And there you'll be able to find past sermons, Bible studies, as well as information about our ministries and our service times if you'd like to come and join with us in person. Now, if you are listening to this as a podcast you're going to hear an advertisement right here, or at least probably you are after I'm done saying these words. But if not, let's move along. And we're back, if you are listening. If you've been with me the whole time, there was an awkward pause there. Either way, let's continue. And the scripture passage we are going to consider today is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and it goes. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred and jugs of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, 
Who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by humans is an abomination in the sight of God. Long passage, I know. If you dozed out, we'll get to some of the stuff that was contained therein here in a moment. But if you were paying attention, and I trust that you were, you may be thinking to yourself, what's going on here? If you are confused about this parable and the sayings that follow it, then you are in company with just about everybody else. I don't think that there was a commentary or a reflection that I read this week about this passage that did not begin by admitting or trying to clear the air and signal into what we've all just discovered, which is that this is one of the most difficult parables that Jesus ever told. It's difficult to discern the overall point. And once the points start to come into focus, some of these things that Jesus seems to be suggesting is troubling. This idea that a dishonest manager is lauded and applauded and told good job by the one that he works for. But then you have this line, no one can serve both God and money. Oh, I get that. That seems like more Jesus-y kind of saying. That it seems like what we're used to when Jesus is making a point. But what's with this dishonest manager? And why did his boss commend him for acting that way? And what did Jesus mean by saying that the children of his generation were more shrewd than the quote-unquote children of light that were actually the followers of Jesus, those children of light? And Jesus says, they're not as cunning as those who deal dishonestly. My disciples, is he insulting his disciples, saying you're not quite as smart as those who are the crooks? And perhaps the most troubling of all is verse 9, which reads, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. And the word used there, same word translated as mammon, unrighteous wealth. This is wealth that's gained unfairly by breaking the rules. So, this is all very troubling. Not to mention the fact that those who behave in this way are told that they will inherit these eternal homes. More on that in a second, too. And it should not surprise you that televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers have used this verse to legitimate their own corrupt partnerships with people who line their own pockets. They point to verses like these or this parable and say, see, it's scriptural. Jesus told us to make friends with shrewd dealers. So, all this to repeat, what on earth is going on here? And just who's supposed to be the God character in the story? Because that's, you know, that's usually the way it works. It's usually what makes these parables so accessible and easy to understand. Jesus tells a story. Someone in the story is a stand-in for God. You figure out who that person is, and then you try to emulate the behavior suggested by the parable or even emulate the God character in the parable. Or if you can't emulate it, at least you have a better understanding of who God is, at least, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. Classic example, story of the prodigal son, God's the forgiving father, or the parable of the woman who loses the coin, God's the woman who searches for the coin, the coin is you or me, you know, fairly simple. 
But this one here is confusing. And many have tried to envision the master in this parable as the God figure and the manager as the would-be disciple, as you or me. So let's try that on for a moment. And I think we'll all discover together, but we already know why this is such a, an unsettling idea. Wouldn't it be strange behavior for God to commend someone who is behaving deceptively? Are we not supposed to lie? Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments, not to lie? And not just deceptively, but deceptively to get himself off the hook. So it's self-preservation as the underlying motive. He eliminated some of the debt to ingratiate himself to his boss's clientele so that he will be received into their homes once he is kicked out on his tail, once he loses his job. So his motives are very self-serving. So it's a strange behavior for God to reward this, the actions of this person who is working the system to advantage himself over others, in fact. And are we supposed to behave in like manner? That's the question. And what's more, wouldn't it be strange to think that God is holding the community in some form of debt peonage, as is the case of the master in this story. How does all of this square with the final verses, verse 13, which seemed very familiar, very comfortable coming from the mouth of Jesus, which warns us that we cannot serve both God and mammon, that is money that is earned in a, a, a dishonest or immoral way. Can't serve both God and that at the same time. So again, the parable with what comes follows, all very confusing until, until something finally clicked for me. I was reading a commentary on the passage written by biblical scholar Clark Williamson, a professor of the New Testament. Um, may he rest in peace. And he suggested in so many words that the problem is that we assume from the onset that one of the characters in the parable is in fact supposed to model God's behavior. How if? This parable does not describe the way the world ought to be, but how the world currently is. How if what follows in the parable is not advice, but rather analysis? You know, the line about not serving God and money both. And then when you begin to consider it through this lens, things begin to make sense. So work with me here. The master in the story is making loans with people in the community, loans that they probably cannot pay. In fact, they can't pay, we find out in the story. They, they can't make good on their loans. So he is not behaving like a God metaphor. He is behaving like a person who lends and expects to reap a profit. That's it. He is behaving like a businessman. And in this sense, he is not unique. And this was a major problem in Jesus' day. And I'm glad that this is no longer the case. Wink, wink. And we don't know if the man making the loans is a Jew or a Gentile, but if he were a Jew, then this would be a violation of the sacred scriptures that were very clear that lending with interest is forbidden. And here's a man lending with interest, considered sinful in the Hebrew Bible. The same Bible that Jesus read, same Bible they would have all known there. So the hearers of the story would be reminded of the plight of many communities that surrounded them, probably their own community, who were held under debt that they could not get out of, debt that was forbidden by their holy text, and yet the people around them continued to do that. And Again, this should all sound so familiar. And then there's the manager. He's the middleman in the story. He's the debt collector, amongst other things. He's a cog in the wheel. He's part of the system, makes it work, part of the corrupt system, I should add. And the master calls him into the office and says, I've been going over the books, and I've concluded that you have been doing a very poor job. 
In fact, the text reads that the manager squandered his boss's resources. And this word squandered is, is the same word used to describe how the prodigal son treated his father's wealth that he had inherited. He just blows through it or loses it. We don't know the nature of his incompetence or if it was indeed incompetence. Maybe the manager wasn't doing a good enough job collecting. I don't know. But what we know is that the manager will soon be out of a job. The, the, the boss is not happy, and the boss says in so many words, give me those books, and I'll take a look over them, and we'll talk later. And the manager is afraid. And of course he is. When your job is on the line, come on. And so the man says, I'm too weak to dig holes. Manual labor is something I'm not cut out for, and... I have too much pride to beg. I'm thinking of people who maybe lose their job midway through life and don't really know where to begin. So he hatches a plan. And the, what he does is, he read it, he reduces the debt of his ma master. He says, 100 barrels of oil, let's make it 50. And he's, you know, you get the idea. He's being very sneaky. Quickly, he says, the text says, quickly. 100 containers of wheat, let me see the bill, let's make it 80. And there you go. And he's doing this because he's thinking that, you know, when I'm out of my job, the neighbors will finally be, they'll be friendly to me. The people who I've been working to exploit, I, well, I've burned that bridge maybe, but now I've repaired the bridge. And when I'm out on my tail, I can, I can find some comfort in their homes. Then the master finds out and you think he's going to be angry after going over the books, but he's not. In fact, he praises the man for his shrewdness. He congratulates him for his dishonesty. He doesn't fire him. And he keeps him on the payroll, and then the story concludes. Now, here's the important point to get through our heads. The parable describes not the realm of God, but the world as it is. Not the world as it should be, but the world as it is in all of its mess. And Jesus says to this, the children of this generation behave shrewdly, not so with the children of light. Jesus is saying, basically, go ahead, play that game. Make friends with people like this master and this manager so that you will dwell with them in their eternal homes. But what kind of homes are those? When you read eternal homes, you need not, you should not, in, given the context, read eternal life or heaven or all of those things with the positive connotations. The Greek word here translated as eternal comes from a same Greek word that well, all the other, in other instances come before words like fire, so like eternal fire. Or it might come from before a word like life, everlasting life, as it's used in more positive settings where it's describing something good that will be the outcome. But then other times it comes before words like everlasting punishment. Or one time in the Gospel of Mark, we read this same word, here translated as eternal, coming before the word damnation. So you get the idea. It doesn't necessarily mean something positive. And when we put it back in the context of this world that we're, the parable lives in, it's certainly not a positive thing. So when Jesus says that we should make friends with dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, we can share in their eternal homes, what sort of home do you think he has in mind? A house built on greed and corruption and deceit? So when this warning is considered in its context, it actually sobers the mind to consider the possibilities. And I will point out that the very next story Jesus tells, to the same audience, by the way, same, same conversation, is the story of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. And in that story, the rich man 
is driven by greed, and he dies, and his eternal home was, well, not pleasant, and more on that next week. Let's just say it wasn't very comfortable. His greed led him to a place of agony. Places of agony. Those are the kinds of homes, places, spaces, the ways that we read about in this parable create. And ver- so if you read verse 9 again in that light, it may come across as different. In fact, I'm going to add my own flourish. So here goes. Verse 9, with my flourish. Go ahead. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, and it will be gone someday, they may welcome you into their homes. And by the way, those so-called eternal homes are homes greedily built by unjust means. These are not happy homes. So now it should be, I hope, all start, should be all starting to make sense. Jesus is warning us away from living lives driven by love of money. That's why the, what comes in verses 13 and 14 is all about love of money and contrasting it with the ways of God. The people operating in an unjust economy will act shrewdly, true enough, and you can play that game, but in the end it will cost you. I'm reminded of something else Jesus said. What will it profit someone if that person gains the whole world, gets themselves on the cover of Fortune magazine, but loses one's self? And you can read that verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 25. That's the way Luke puts it, and Luke puts it in, in his gospel, that we might gain a whole lot, but lose ourselves in the rat race. I once spoke with a friend who had been a debt collector, similar to the job described in this parable. And it was her job to collect debt owed by people who lived in low-income apartments, in a low-income apartment complex. And she saw herself as the manager in this story. We talked about it. I told her what I was going to preach on. And she saw herself in that character. Her boss would tell her, collect all that you can, all that they owe us. And it was not uncommon for someone to run out on the debt or to get lost in order to avoid paying the bill that they could not afford. And when this happened, she had to work through the legal system to track them down, which was difficult because many of those evicted from low-income housing were transient. Nice way of putting homeless, moving from place to place, hard to track down. So she decided to do something different. She began to, like the manager in our story, negotiate the bills down. And legally, it was within her rights to demand that they pay that back with interest. But instead, she'd waive the interest and ask them, you know, what can you pay? And the person would name the price, and then they'd set, up, set them up on a regular monthly payment. And at first, her boss was upset, just like we'd expect the manager, the, the, the master in today's story to be upset that, the, that she had negotiated down the price. But when he began to notice that they were collecting far more than they had before, Well, he changed his mind. For one thing, the debtors were tending to stay put. So you have more months income, you know, better than when they just leave and pay nothing. At least they're paying something and staying. They stopped running away to avoid their debts. Also, the boss noticed how they were collecting money from people who before hadn't been paying anything at all. And so this new way, the boss concluded, was more profitable, which could be why our manager is applauded in the story for being shrewd in the way that they were. My friend's experience might just shed some light on the fact as to why the master is praised for master praises the behavior of the manager because now his debtors were actually able to pay something back. Now perhaps the master has found that 
he's collecting more than he had previously been able to. So the new way leads to more profit and more greed. He's found that sweet spot, that threshold of most financial burden that the debt debtor can bear. So my friend, who was once a debt collector for an apartment complex, acclimated and even learned to thrive in her role in that system that is in many ways cruel. I was reminded of my own situation in relation to my student loan companies that I deal with on a monthly to yearly basis. And those phone calls with the representative with the private loan company, well, sir, what can you pay? Okay, well, we'll just charge you the interest for a little bit, all right? Then you breathe a little sigh of relief and have some gratitude on the other side of the line because now you have a little wiggle room. I feel similar feelings to those felt by the debtors in our parable who were ingratiated to the manager who was ripping them off most days for reducing their bills. So we are each working within these systems, systems today and in the parable, ancient systems, and some people become very good at it. That's what we're talking about with the shrewd ways of the manager. That's what we mean by that, shrewd ways. People who are good at finding ways of working with L, working well within these systems and surviving within them. We play the game. We play the game. Others, like the debtors, are strung along, paying into it as best as they are able into the never-ending cycle of debt, loans, credit, whatever, and others are in the position of the master who's trying to find the right formula to haul in the maximum profit. In the meantime, people are buried in debt, fear, insecurity, and all of the anxiety that these systems induce. And here's what Jesus has to say about this system in his day and systems like it. Verse 13, no slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In other words, buck the system. And this message will not be well received by corporate masters. It's never received well by people who benefit by these systems, who, whose greed leads to lots of wealth. In the final verse after Verse 13, actually the 14th verse, is very telling. Literally, right after Jesus has said, you can't serve both God and money, comes the line, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So the suggestion that maximizing profits does not lead to healthy lives in a just society, it's ridiculed in Jesus' day and it is still the same today, often ridiculed. Let me rephrase it all. Jesus's condemnation of greed and the pursuit of wealth is often ridiculed. Some have even called greed good. All this to say, Jesus responds, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts for what is prized by humans is an abomination in the sight of God. So it seemed smart, wise, shrewd, intelligent, worthwhile to the leaders of his day. It was called abomination by Jesus. It's no wonder that this approach to wealth and possessions has been ridiculed 
by countless peoples through the centuries. This sort of approach to wealth is so counterintuitive. Jesus' approach is so counterintuitive, at least to cultures like ours. But our ways are not God's ways. And our greed is an abomination in the sight of God. So, children of light, do not acclimate to this consumer culture one that slaps a price tag on nearly everything and everyone, from water to air to cheap commodities. The gospel of Jesus in any age may seem foolish by the collective wisdom and assumptions of the time, but if we believe that the way of Jesus leads to our salvation, so, well, we are going to have to. We're going to have to learn to live into his words. So long as we play the game and our collective love of money dictates our decisions, we will be caught in the same bind the manager in our parable found himself in. If you are shrewd, you may well find your way in this mess, get a promotion even, but that way will corrupt your heart. Or at the very least, leave you jaded and cynical, as many of my friends have become. So long as we share a collective assumption that we will consume more this year than we did last year and next year more than we consume this year and this is the way we measure the health of our communities, we will continue to serve the wrong master. So maybe to turn and follow Jesus in the year 2022 means that we reject our culture's love and pursuit of wealth. Maybe our being disciples means that we no longer measure the health of a nation by how much money we make or how productive we've been together or how much junk we've produced for resale, but by the way we've cared for the poor among us, the marginalized and the most vulnerable. Seems like several of the Hebrew prophets said something remarkably similar. One in particular, oh yeah, his name was Jesus, and we call ourselves his disciples. We just read the parable that he told to make the point. So children of light, it's time for us to change our minds and our ways and then follow him. Children of light, it is time to follow the gospel. This has been the Northwood Podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast by way of whatever app you use to listen or leave a comment. These points of engagement drive more traffic our way. Or check out our website, www.indync.org. And also check out the other podcasts produced by the All Indiana Podcast Network. Until next time, this has been the Northwood Podcast. I am Heath Jones. Peace.